taking a detour from the Ron Moore's Darkest Nightmares. It's Vidra, please. Not currently a hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. My name is Joseph. And I am your gritty flashbacks into the past of what a piece of shit you are, Joe. Peter. <laughs> before we get to the gritty flashbacks, in fact, before we talk about anything at all, uh, side note, if you're listening to this, you're probably a patron on our Patreon. Thank you. We appreciate you. This is a special episode we're recording as a, a bonus to those of you who uh, who are chipping in for all of our server costs and that sort of thing. And instead of talking about Star Trek as we normally do this time around, we're talking about, I would call Star Trek's descendant, uh, Star Trek's uh, second cousin, uh, Battlestar Galactica, the reimagined Battlestar Galactica uh, that was the brainchild of Ron Moore, longtime Trek showrunner, writer, and eventually Voyager casualty. <laughs> <laughs> wow, where to begin on this one? And specifically, I I, we're, we're talking about uh, Battlestar Galactica TV movie Razor. And we'll discuss like what that is, where it fits in the context of everything else. But Peter, where do we start with this discussion? Just an overall conceptual acknowledgement. Like... Going through Voyager episode by episode, we're in the seventh season uh, as you and I record this on July 25th, 2021, right? Correct. So we've been doing this for several years now, and we are certainly deep in the trenches of Voyager. So uh, to go back into Battlestar Galactica and see the number of parallels is really astounding. And I don't think there's any other media out there, including Next Gen right? That I think really you can compare as closely to Star Trek Voyager as Battlestar Galactica. I completely agree. I don't think that that was an unintentional thing on Ron Moore's part when he created it, as we discussed when we reviewed his episodes of Voyager, which is it just seems so much like he saw this potential in Voyager's premise that he found another pop culture property that shared the premise in a weird way and decided to develop his own idea of what that show probably should have looked like and his long pedigree as a trek writer is absolutely present in some of the ways he decides to tell these stories they're radically different in so many other ways which we'll get to um, let's let's start by actually talking about the show and put it into some context for people who may not have maybe they've watched it but maybe didn't watch it in its time that's certainly me right yeah. i'm guessing you watched bsg as each episode premiered uh, for the first time, right? I was so hard in the paint on this show. Not only did I watch it every single episode as it aired on its original air date from start to finish, I went over to our mutual friend Mike's house, uh, the tiny LARPer friend that we both have, to do so. And like we made it a whole event every week to like go over early, talk about what we thought was going to happen in the episode, talk about it after... Uh, yeah, I was I was a hardcore Battlestar Galactica stan. What you are explaining right now is what has gone on to become, you know, most people's Game of Thrones uh, experience, right? Yeah, I would say so. It was quite equivalent to the way a lot of people watched Game of Thrones, particularly later now, on. I'm on the other side of that coin. And that other side of the coin is is heavily populated, right? I missed all this stuff initial run, and it wasn't until an internet friend of my wife badgered her to the point where he sent over in the mail his BSG DVDs to make her watch it. 
and I was able to sit down and binge Battlestar Galactica on DVDs. And this was such a popular phenomenon that uh, Portlandia, right? Yes. Uh, Fred Armiston. Like there is a whole episode basically dedicated to this exact phenomenon. It was in many ways ahead of its time and invented many of the concepts that we think about when it comes to the television medium. So let me try to unpack that thought a little bit. Show premiered as a miniseries in 2003 that was intended to be a shadow pilot for a show, which was ordered. So it started in 2004, ran until, I believe, 2009. It was supposed to end in 2008, writer's strike interfered with the fourth season being able to actually finish. So they finished the fourth season after that ended. So that's kind of like it took a while for it to actually uh, wrap up. This was the bleeding edge of what we now refer to as the golden age of television. This was television going from the 26 episodes a season, uh, formulaic, uh, kind of low rent form of media consumption into prestige storytelling that we have now come to consider normal uh, as we are here spoiled by movie stars doing television shows, limited run stuff on streaming services left and right. Before any of that happened, Battlestar Galactica happened. This was a huge aberration. This was on the sci-fi channel, which was where you watched fucking Sharknado level asylum movies for the most part, like, and syndicated stuff from 20 years ago was a new show on that network. And there was fucking money behind it. Like NBC Universal, who owns Sci-Fi Channel, decided we're the bet big on this idea of doing this intense, lots of like prestige actors that have like done shit and really tell a serious story on the Sci-Fi Channel. And it's interesting, too, because like next gen coming out you've already got this pedigree of fan base there and i don't know how big the original battlestar galactica uh fan base was but everybody knows the story and everybody thinks they kind of understand where this is going and chrome cylons and bright fluorescent lights and uh disco you know disc space is very disco (laughs) and then you get this which is like a back alley knife fight (laughs) (laughs) dirty People are getting their eyeballs knocked out and chewed on until they burst and blood and gore goes everywhere. Like, BSG's fucking brutal, and nobody was ready for it. This show was the first one that saw a lot of success, not because it was watched in its original broadcast window, but because it was popular across other mediums. It was huge on DVD. It was huge on DVR. So this was pre-streaming, so DVR slash TiVo, if you remember that. Was a, was a big deal in the mid-2000s because you record television and watch it later off the hard drive that was essentially connected to your television. The big key to TiVo over VHS, like simple VCR recordings, is the ability to quickly fast-forward through commercials. Right, the, tr- the true precursor to streaming. And that became such a popular piece of technology that they started to try and track who was downloading the show to watch later. So this is the show invented that metric. People started tracking that because of Battlestar Galactica and its specific popularity amongst people using that technology. And the Portlandia effect, as you said, because it was popular in ways outside of its nine o'clock time slot on fucking sci-fi, people would find it on DVD, binge the whole season and super get into it. 
and and then cultishly drag other people in and initiate them into the experience. So this this show was a, a completely different thing for television at the time, and it's incredibly high uh, production value, music, and all star cast of of actors. Like we're not talking Oscar winners, but you're talking workers like Edward James Almos. You know, like uh, Michelle Forbes is in this, you know, mm. like, is in the movie and was in the show as well. You know, people like Mary McDonald, who played Laura Roslin. These are people who've been in things. They've been in movies. They've also done TV work. A lot of them went on to do TV work after. And you had some like the Vancouver Pope people as well, because this was filmed there. So that was a big thing at the time is a lot of sci-fi stuff got filmed in Canada because it was cheaper. And so there is a rule where if you film something in Vancouver, you have to use Canadian actors, a certain amount of them, which is why you always seem to see the same people in some of this shit. Well, you know, you got your Canadians in this one. You've got Trisha Helfer. You've got Michael Hogan. You know, you've, you've, uh, I don't think Katie, maybe Katie Sackhoff was Canadian. I can't remember. I'm going to look this up real quick. Trisha Helfer. Yeah, she's from Portland. Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> Trisha Helfer goes on to become a very big deal. I, th- I think this was her breakout, right? That is correct. She was a model before this. She never acted. And through this, uh, she has basically become the face of rogue AI, right? Yes. Yeah, she uh, she got that Mass Effect job because of this. And then I Mass think Effect, probably... Tron. I mean, she's all over the place. Uh, Trisha Helfer had a really funny story about her very first day filming Battlestar Galactica with James Callis played Baltar and uh, this, the scene that they had to do, they had never met each other before this really, you know? And uh, the scene was that they had to make out with each other on a bed of human skulls. So they had to get to know each other in between takes of making out each with each other on a bed of human skulls. A, sh- a scene did not appear ultimately in the miniseries at all. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, just that's like, for Ronald Moore's private collection. <laughs> and uh, she's like, it's very strange because like James Callis is a real professional. Right. So, you know, in between takes, he's like, oh, how are you? Do you have any kids? You know, like that sort of thing, like having these casual conversations. And then she's like still trying to like get her mind around like what she's trying to accomplish here. And she he started to pick up on it and is like, I'll shut up. <laughs> like whatever you need me to do. I'm ready. I get it. You're this is weird for you. It's a little weird for me too. So where does Razor specifically fit into the larger Battlestar Galactica uh equation? So this was a spawn of the very phenomenon we've talked about, which is this was a big show on DVD. It was so big in fact that NBC was like, "Hey, what if we create a TV movie?" specifically that will air on television and be sold on DVD like two days later to like capitalize on this. No commercials. Yeah. Consume this in this, in this cultish vibe of, of through digital media rather than actually watching it. And let's like sweeten the pot by the TV version will be like the bland version. And then we're going to have like the unrated extra dvd that comes out immediately that has extra material so even if you watched it on tv you're gonna want to buy the dvd because there's gonna be like 20 more minutes in it so that's the fucking trick they pulled it is unfathomable to me in in 2021 to think about anyone giving two shits about dvd sales and i i'm 39 right now i went through 
the the heyday of all this. I still have a room full of DVDs and even VHS types that um, I, I haven't looked at in forever. My profession, in fact, we get a lot of uh, uh, decommissioned and, and recycled material, people's old movies and stuff. Just a sheer amount of garbage out there, DVD stuff. But yeah, back in, what is this, 2007? Yep. Uh, DVD and, and soon-to-be Blu-ray sales were big players in the markets, man. Like Companies were pushing for this. The streaming services had not kicked off yet. You had Netflix sending dvds through the mail that you would watch and then have to return and uh yeah like selling movies on printed media was a big revenue generator so it's very interesting to hear your input on where the production money for this oh this uh, was so this was so dirty it's this is that doesn't even scratch the surface okay season three had a cliffhanger okay this comes out between that cliffhanger and the start of season four. All right. This comes out in, I want, yeah, November of 2007. The season four premiere isn't until April of 2008. Okay. So there's this huge gap between the two. And they advertise the DVD that saying it's got all this uncut material and trailers for season four on it to get you to buy it <laughs> as it's on television. Oh, and you bet your fucking ass. I bought that thing two days later. <laughs> I was right there. They got me so good. While this was a direct DVD event, right? With, with, with the mini, with, with, with the airplay and then becoming its own DVD movie. Uh, it also was aired in theaters. And uh, as my wife was, you know, my wife tells her, her, discord friends or whatever about where the podcast is at what we're doing that we were getting into this and that spurred its own uh, bsg discussions but so, someone mentioned there and i went out and i checked and confirmed it so microsoft actually did screenings of this in select cities right hmm. movie theater screenings you want to talk about some dirty shit joe <laughs> before the screening and after the screening non-stop xbox 360 ads right oh, sure of course right in the middle of the fucking movie they stop and insert 10 more minutes worth of xbox 360 ads which were oh. universally booed the entire 10 minutes <laughs> so whatever microsoft thought they were going to be like running ads for nobody heard what it was about because everybody's just booing and that dovetails nicely into my own experience in watching this movie or trying to watch this movie uh, last week because um, my wife bought me the Razor slash The Plan Blu-ray 2-pack, right? Correct. And I'm like, ooh, shit. We, we've never watched this thing. It's always just been a back burner thing because as we will go on and we've said before, like, BSG and it like Game of Thrones, ended so fucking badly to me personally with all the religious bullshit and other craziness that it turned me off, right? BSG's ending was so bad that despite it was filled with hokey religious bullshit, even I hated it. <laughs> I don't know. So how There's else a I can true litmus test. Wow. Yeah, even I hated it. <laughs> so I go to watch this Blu-ray finally, right? And I've got a big badass 4K TV and I've got a very nice 
surround sound set up with like Dolby Atmos capability, which I've really been waiting for like something cinematic to watch. So I'm like, all right, this is going to be it. So I take my Blu-ray and I put it into my Microsoft Xbox One, which is like the only media player I have right now uh, that can handle uh, Atmos anyways. And I put it in and it is such a fucking miserable experience. This is this is why I love the fact that Microsoft showed this thing and, and had <laughs> dealing with physical media in 2021 is is disgusting. The fucking menu system on Xbox is terrible. I'm trying to skip around. I'm only getting like half the audio. I'm hearing like people setting stuff on tables, but not the dialogue. And it's so miserable that I just I stop after six minutes of fucking around with this. My wife's like, just just bootleg it. We don't, we're going to be here all night. And that's what I did. I went on to buy <laughs> you, you literally physically owned this movie and had to bootleg it anyway to watch it digitally. Yes. Yes. And 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 after I downloaded, I also saw the New York and Morty was out. So I watched that first and it was great. <laughs> it's the Cenobite episode. Loved it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, going back to media is hard and uh, holding it now to the streaming standard. And watching it right up along there. Man, there's a lot to unpack on this thing. Yeah, so let's go ahead and get into it, man. Let's actually talk about this thing. So I'm going to... Here, here's how I want to begin this. Because sure. Razor is a very striking title. And and I'm wondering, like, hmm, what, what could Razor be in reference to? We'll later come to find out it's this bullshit folding buck knife. <laughs> But in a moment of tribute, a little bit of a forced metaphor, (laughs) too much. Why why couldn't it be dagger like that? We'll we'll get into that. But before we start, uh, I want to give a moment of homage here to uh, our Australian listeners. And since one of the main characters in this uh, movie is Australian, I'm going to I'm going to give you a a little a little treat. and I'm going to teach you how to talk Australian, Joe. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, they really should have been here for this, but that's our fault. All right. I want you to go ahead and say, rise up lights. Rise up lights. It's, say it smoothly, though. Rise up lights. And that's how you say razor blades in Australian. <laughs> Every time she rise says, up. rise up, rise up. And I'm like, rise up lights, rise up lights. That's it, all I heard the whole movie. That is good. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I, so the the main actress in this, Stephanie Jacobson, um, I don't know if she's like a thing in Australia. It's the only thing I've really ever seen in, except for Terminator: The Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was a show on Fox, like me and six other people watched. Um, but uh, she, you know, she ends up being. It's this one of those things that they created where like most of the main cast are not in it. Um, Guys, it, Baltar is there for like four seconds. Enough for me to be scene. like, <laughs> and that one scene's enough for me to like sit there scratching my head and be like, wait, where the hell does this all fit? It is. So- Let's let me go ahead and say this now. Having watched as much Voyager as we have and harped on the same points over and over complaints about the lack of continuity the ship in a bottle episodes yeah um the 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 conscious decision time and time again to ignore events in your own history and to constantly hold it uh to battlestar galactica where it's the opposite 
sitting through this and coming in out of, uh, I don't know, five years since I've watched any of this stuff. Um, maybe there's something kind of to Paramount's decision to <laughs> do Voyager the way they did, because boy, trying to watch this thing in a void. I don't know what was, the fuck was going on. It was on. jarring like, at the time. Like this was a flat. This movie is a flashback where the primary story happens before the end of season two, but the flashbacks within the primary story happen alternatively 40 years ago or like before season one. The flashbacks are easy. I mean, they're all contextual and they tell a cohesive story. I'm saying like everything else that you should know is going on and that, the producers and the the show itself is like, well, if you're here, you should know all this stuff. Yeah, gonna... I was gonna say, if, to be clear, if you've never watched Battlestar Galactica, don't fucking start here. For the love of Jesus, don't 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 try and pick up here. You will be so lost. Even if you did watch Battlestar Galactica, like I did, but it has been years. Don't start here because you're not. I'm sitting there, and I, again, I'm 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 seriously like, man, maybe there was kind of something to Voyager's decision to make everything a little self-contained because going real deep into the paint, like deep in the weeds, on on an expectation that you're going to know where each and every one of these people are at this exact moment in their journey uh, is very presumptuous, and it can make for a very difficult experience to just kind of come in cold. The premise of this movie is to tell the story of when Lee Adama was in command of the Pegasus. Uh, what Ron Moore said was that was chosen because that was something fans had said that they, you know, were kind of upset they never got to see because Lee became the commander of the Pegasus late in season two. And then essentially right after that, you get to the finale where they time jump into season three because of their settlement on New Caprica. And so you would presume stuff happened between he takes command and ultimately they end up finding uh, New Caprica. And this is filling in that, that those details to say, here is a, a story of, of Lee in command. And also, what is another thing we never got to see? Well, we never got to see what the fuck the Pegasus people actually did before they found Galactica. In, uh, in in season two as well and so this actually puts to film the stories that were told by different characters at different times uh, that you heard about and then you actually get to see what actually happened so this is continuity porn at its finest this exists entirely to color in gaps in the story that exist that you know what you know if you want to make a movie and we're we don't want to get into season four stuff because that left on a huge cliffhanger uh this is what we got this is what we can do we can fill in the lines so let's do that it's interesting to have this experience with battlestar galactica right now you know two weeks after disney put out black widow which i still have not seen because i'm not really a huge marvel guy but i've always resented these whether it's dlc and video games like uh, the first day of sex uh where like he does his alaska adventure or whatever oh yeah 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 he has the... or these movies where it's like you take the timeline of the thing you're interested in and then like pinch to zoom three or four times into one little section of like we're gonna tell this grand story now and it's gonna be so fucking sweet and blah 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 but you can't have that much agency because 
I know what, what's what's the main character's name in this? The Lieutenant Kendra Shaw, it, yeah, Kendra Shaw. I know goddamn well she's not in season three, so something's gonna happen that she's gonna die here or whatever, and it really puts a limited amount of agency in whatever the story they're able to tell. And and from what I've heard from the people watching Black Widow, same deal there. It's like what what do you what do you what are you really trying to do here other than to like milk a moment that's inconsequential? A couple things about the cast. Kendra Shaw, who's our main character, is going to be portrayed as a hard ass. She's going to be portrayed as this tough as nails creation of Admiral Kane, this officer that exemplifies Kane's dogged, militaristic inhumanity. And in that way, she contrasts against. Uh, Starbuck, Kara Thrace, who is in some ways the equivalent on Galactica as the favored daughter, uh, surrogate daughter of, uh, of Commander Adama, Admiral Adama at this point. And the, the big problem I have with that is Katie Sackoff is actually really tall for a woman and has a kind of physicality that kind of makes you buy her swaggering tomboy badass persona in a way that otherwise might be difficult to suspend your disbelief for, right? Like she she carries it. She carries it and she makes you believe it because she can kind of get there physically as to to match her attitude. She it at all times on screen seems like maybe she's about to cock her fist back and slug. Yeah, and you think you can, she can probably roll somebody too. Like she's got that look to her and she looks like she does a lot of push-ups, you know? Uh, whereas this Stephanie James and playing Kendra Shaw, she's like this tiny wayfish girl. And you just like, there's times when like facing off against each other. And it's like, am I supposed to think that Kendra Shaw has got any game here? Like <laughs> she just get dunked by this giant woman that she's up against. There's no, there's no threat here. Like, I don't buy her as someone anyone would be afraid of. Now, that sucks because I think she does a good job trying to carry the performance in some really strong scenes and moments. But it seemed like a... In- Intimidation's not there. And yeah. jumping over to Discovery for a moment, right? Uh, I would say that um, Georgia, whatever her uh, evil twin version is, like does come off as menacing and intimidating. So it's not limited to the physical size of a person. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that Jacobson's a, a bad actor. It's just, it's a, it's a mismatch. It's it's not a great yeah. fit for the types it's of a, situation they're putting that person specifically into. Yeah. The first scene is kind of, there's a flashback of Pegasus going through a whole bunch of its command structure. Ad- Admiral Kane died um, in season two. And immediately after that, his, her exo commander Fisk takes over, gets killed, like in the fucking pre-credit sequence in the next episode does not last. And then the guy from LA confidential. Yes. I forgot he was even in it, man. Like, and this is what I'm saying. Like they start rattling stuff off and I'm trying to remember like who the fuck this guy is. And I'm like, yeah, I do kind of remember he got like, who killed him? Who strangled? You got killed. You got killed by the, uh, the, the duke from the pre- from predator <laughs> remember him the guy with the fucking yeah. gun <laughs> that's who no no him. no 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 yeah 
the guy with the minigun was Jesse the Body Ventura. You're thinking okay, of the yeah, guy yeah. saying, I'm going to have me some fun and he's dry shaven until he starts bleeding? Yes, that guy. Uh, he got, because he was like the Black Market episode. Mm, right. And then and then after that, it was uh, Gardner, who was this off-screen character that showed up for one episode that was like an engineer. And then he failed. And so now Lee is being placed in command of Pegasus. And he goes over with Kara to take command of the ship and try and kind of sort it out right because there's a lot of tension as a consequence of kane being a monster and we got the stories of admiral kane having been a monster that were told by fisk to uh, uh colonel ty you know in like when they're having like drunk reverie and he's like telling the stories of all the shit admiral kane got up to before they found pegasus like and so there's not a lot of trust for anybody on that ship as a consequence and Lee going over is meant to be a, I'm going to clean this place up. Kane is unequivocally a villain. And it took me a while to remember that. And it was reinforced. I was doing some research and Ronald Moore talked about that. Um, he initially had strong reservations about pairing uh, Kane with... Uh, what's what's is it gina was that her name the data security tech that betrays yes. him correct having there be this lesbian love romance uh affair that portraying uh two very villainous characters in a lesbian relationship could have been <laughs> perceived as being um uh anti-homosexual and like vilifying them because they're they're too bad people but ultimately i thought it worked out well and I, I think it's cool when you have a situation like that and that you're giving uh the respect anytime you make someone a bad guy like i see that as a sign of respect so putting that in there i i think was a strong moment for equality or whatever but again having ronald moore flat out say like yeah kane is a villain gina is a villain uh shaw i think gets painted pretty villainously and that's kind of like the charm of Battlestar Galactic for me is having villains be main characters and not just mustache twirling idiots who are there to get stunted on in the end. And also to have a level of humanity that allows them to not be one dimensional villains. Kane is characterized quite generously in some places in this. Uh, there's flashbacks that kind of try to explain why is she the way she is? Why is Helena Kane this such a absorbed in hatred and i'm going to kill the cylons and i i really don't care about anything else type of character well we we see flashbacks from her childhood from when the cylons were literally bombing her planet and killing her family and it's horrific and awful and she doesn't have a life right she's a military person you know you, you see her interacting with her first officer you know she's on the treadmill running like you know like she, they're about to go on leave she doesn't know how to leave work her you know her first officer uh belzer is like listen you know you can come hang out with me and my wife trying to really connect this because she doesn't have anything she doesn't have a family and she can't connect with that she can't connect with that kind of human offer of connection and they got me pretty good with that belzer guy too like he's in a lot of stuff I'm like i don't recognize this guy at all what what am I missing here? Oh, that's why I don't know who this guy is. Because his brains are all over the map now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they talk about it. We got it. 
executed. Didn't you see it? <laughs> well, I totally forgot about it. So that that kind of stunned me when that came up. Um, so, yeah, you know, she's got these strong motivations to be the way she is. And very clearly what she is doing is villainous and at times clearly evil. Uh, but it is always, you know, that the, the right way to portray a villain is they don't see what they're doing as it's Machiavellian, right? It's everything in the service to the greater good. The ends justify the means uh, raiding civilian fleets and stealing resources from them and and massacring them if needed to, to keep and then leaving the survivors to die straight up. Yeah. But, you know, all those resources are on deck when they meet up with Galactica and would Galactica be able to get through the things and does the things that it needs to to save the day at the end if uh, she hadn't made those choices when she did. So it's, you know, it's muddy water all around. And that's what the show does best, just like you said. Like, there's a scene late in this in the in the show where it's Lee and, and Admiral Adama talking about why Kane did what Kane did. And ultimately, how those things could possibly be justified when Admiral Adama says, listen, I'm lucky I had you here. I couldn't have looked my son in the face if I had done those kinds of things. I'm lucky I had Laura Roslin here in my fucking face every day. Because when I had those stray thoughts to act like that, I had impulses to draw me away from doing that. What if I were Admiral Kane and I didn't have any of those impulses? I probably would have done the same fucking thing. And that kind of bridge is the way this show storytelling is always perfect, right? Like they never miss when it comes to that kind of stuff. He wraps that scene up by saying, cause, you know, it's the decision to nuke or not to nuke the Cylon hybrid ship or whatever. He said, you know, your choice wasn't wrong. My choice wasn't wrong. Kane's choices weren't wrong. It's just what are the options on the table and, and you know, where's the victory and where's the defeat? The other thing this this TV movie nails, I think, supremely well is really trying to jam home how monstrously awful the Cylons were during the first war and why the people who survived it have this fuck the Cylons eternally and forever feel to them because it's always you hear like the stories of all of the people who died and how terrible the war is and thousands of people died in this boarding or whatever and certainly they do a decent job of showing the silence being intimidating murder machines when they show up on occasion. This takes it to another level, you know, like in, in really driving home the inhumanity of the enemy. So I did see this and that was something that always kind of like stood out as a straight thought. Cause once I completed um, the initial run through Battlestar Galactica, I was like, man, I really remember like these, hellraiser scenes with like military people walking around a cathedral of flesh and like gruesome people getting skinned alive and and like just these brief flashes and in in this when uh, we hit, do have one of the flashbacks of uh admiral adama back in his viper pilot days crash landing and walking into this fucking terminator research facility <laughs> Where it's like straight up Hellraiser. Yeah, straight yeah. up. Yeah, absolutely. Just a whole a horrific horror movie setup. I'm curious what the cut scenes were, and it had to be stuff like this, right? Like, I, could you get away with showing that kind of stuff on Sci Fi Channel? It was not on the TV cut. 
this was definitely some shit that was on DVD only. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Because that whole sequence, I think, is deserving of some discussion. Because it is, like, the most hot and cold and most, like, cool and fucking ridiculous thing. But the story continues in what you would call the present day, which is this season, end of season two era, when Carathrace is still alive. The big flat, the big thing that happened at the end of season three is Carathrace died during season three. She comes back at the end of season three. So she's definitely still alive at the time this is happening, but this is why they had to dig back into continuity because they can't really tell stories to explain what the fuck was going on at this point. And Lee calls Shaw to his office to be like, yeah, so Admiral Kane thought you were great. Other two CEOs thought you were terrible. Uh, you know, the last one busted you back the lieutenant and had you peeling potatoes. So who are you? And a lot of the time when, when Kendra Shaw is talking about her past, what you get instead are these flashbacks we're talking about. Uh, and specifically the flashbacks to the things the Pegasus did. And we get a little bit of her backstory through that. If she's been assigned, this is before the attack. You know, humanity is having a great day, as they do. And she's been assigned to work on the Pegasus under Admiral Kane um, as a stepping stone to her career in the in the fleet. She's apparently the daughter of someone important, some politician. And, you know, this is something she's going to babysit Admiral Kane for a couple of years, and then she'll be able to get in the fleet command. And she's got this whole dream. It's like this uh, good shepherd setup, you know, people who did not want to be on a military space vessel for any longer than absolutely necessary and then tragedy strikes and before you know it you're stuck working deck 15 <laughs> forever forever she gets to the ship uh you you get uh her meeting a number six copy named gina uh that is on the uh the pegasus working on their computer systems it is helpful red-headed version of trisha helfer that uh, directs her to the CIC. Admiral Kane busts her balls a little bit after she shows up, has a laugh about it with her CO, you know, normal stuff. And then you get Hoshi, who is a side character that become much more prominent in season four, actually. Like, he becomes a big, I guess we'd call him even a recurring character by the time season four rolls around to, like, take her to her quarters. And then that's when the silent attack happens. Um, and this is a good time to bring up the CG. CG of the show is starting to show its age. Um, I remember it being pretty dope at the time. Man, watching this in HD now, you're like, this is uh, definitely something that was made about 15 years ago. It is by no means as bad as Voyager. Oh, uh, no. It is definitely at that that level of like PS3 level cutscenes, which is to say, still pretty good, uh, but embarrassing compared to what you can make now, but it you, yes. put it in the, you put it in the context at the time it was great yes and no it looks fake but even fake even if it's like video game graphics the shit going on on screen is always fucking rad right stuff blown up people getting sucked into space badass dog fights like oh yeah uh it's yeah. always kinetic and, and really cool now what is not kinetic and really cool is the hard on they have for steady cam shots like this jason Bourne, uh you know point of view camera shaking non-stop gets so old so quick it's nauseating and it was a huge turnoff it's a you forget how much of that they liked to, to do on battlestar galactica 
And, you know, the reason why is because in effect sequences, it is cheaper to do your shots that way. Because this way you don't have to do a whole shit ton of detail that costs extra money because you're sh- you're showing the the frenetic and panicked, ver- you know, you give you that that panicked sort of sense by shooting it that way. And then you, you, you could don't have to worry about holding on these shots that the longer you look at them, the worse they look, you know. So that's why they do it. It's a budget thing. Sure. But it does get old. It almost gives you a headache. I do like in the space sequences, though, the uh, the signature like pan and then zoom into that sector of space. And now you can see the starfighter and then zoom in closer like uh, and they'll actually pick that up, I think, in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, the 2009. It's a it's a cool effect. And I do like seeing that attack occurs. Uh, Pegasus is able to get away by jumping blind. So they they, they get their their uh, faster than light drive online, but the computer's down. And so Admiral Kane orders um, Shaw to just put in random ass coordinates and jump the ship, which is considered extraordinarily risky because if you don't plot your jump, you could wind up in the middle of a star in a, in a moon in an asteroid field and you're just all dead. Uh, but of course remaining there for any length of time was also certain death because the place is just getting nuked. There's, you see all battle stars is getting blown up in front of you. The whole place, the whole Scorpion ship yard is just getting crushed. Uh, they had to leave and they had to leave immediately. And then they did. This uh, is the first, I don't know if I want to say villainous or even an act of cowardice, but this will be an ongoing theme that we will see from Kane that sometimes you have to leave people behind to continue the fight. And there, I think is they don't really say it on screen, but they show it that running from the fight bothers people, but, but it is that necessity. Uh, Pegasus is only able to escape the fight because, and if you'll remember Battlestar Galactica is like a big analog throwback. Pegasus is bleeding edge, new digital. The rest of the fleet is new digital and it's a virus or some sort of malware that disables everything. So they are able to just get hammered relentlessly. But, Pegasus is lucky enough that those systems are down for service and they are not disabled to quite the same level that the rest of the fleet is and and able to to get out, luckily punching in the correct coordinates and jumping. And that's a good friction point between Shaw and Kang because Shaw is like dragging her feet like, I don't want to end up in the middle of a sun. And Kane's like, fucking do it or else. And they do it and, and they get out alive. They do a good job of also showing how badass Pegasus is by the fact that they take multiple nuclear detonations and are still able to function. They, Ron Moore has a, a real handle on these details in a way Voyager never does, right? We meme constantly on the torpedo thing, right? And the, just like the wear and tear and resource scarcity thing just does not play into that show at all. Whereas... Early on in, in Galactica, they get hit by one nuke, and it, it, it really compromises the ship that they took a nuclear detonation, right, early on in, in the miniseries. And they talk about it throughout the rest of the show. And indeed, by the end of the show, Galactica is starting to fall apart because they got hit by a nuke. Pegasus is so bleeding edge and so cool. They get hit by two nukes at the beginning, and they're like, still got away. And they're like, man, we got hit by two nukes. Good thing we didn't get hit by three more. That might have been some trouble. <laughs> like this thing is way cooler than Galactica, right? Like they 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 very clearly make that evident in 
its combat capability across the board. It's able to do things that old ass Galactica simply cannot do. And uh, it's also part of the reason they got rid of it is when Pegasus was on the show, there wasn't that urgent feel of like living on the precipice of death. And so they had to dispose of it in a way that was ended up kind of being comically dumb the way they did it just so they didn't have to have this extra giant super battle star that could literally create new vipers and was like four times better than Galactica hanging out. Like we got to get back to the nitty gritty. We got to get rid of this thing. Um, but they jump away and this starts the primary back, you know, flashback story of, of Shaw, of her kind of like becoming Kane's protege and, and doing her bidding. Do they ever give Shaw a reason why she wants to live up to Kane's expectations? Or is it just everybody has been traumatized by what has happened and Kane has a strong public face. She has a, she's, she has embodied that resolve and people are just gravitating towards it because it's desperate times. They never give a reason aside from just the collective trauma of everything that's happened. Like to their perspective, humanity has been wiped off the face of the universe. You know, they're the last remnant of people and all they can do is vent their rage on the remaining machines. They can get their fucking hands on. Right. Right. So it's this, I am legend situation. And that's also a good contrast because Galactica, it becomes about survival of the human species, about Correct. shepherding uh, what's left of the civilization and growing uh, versus Kane, as you just said, that's like, we could. Yeah, I mean, how many people are on Pegasus? There's got to be thousands, right? Correct. You could go off and recolonize and all that other stuff, but instead we are going to dedicate our purpose here forward, not in saving the human race but in exacting revenge uh however possible on the people who have attacked us or you know the robots that have attacked us current day story continues in lee deciding to make shaw his executive officer as a way to bind his command to kane's legacy um kane being an important part of what happened pegasus and a lot of people as he puts it, holding the torch for her. And so he recognizes it's necessary if they're going to move forward that he has to recognize, you know, there's a bunch of this crew that loved Kane and I have to show, I appreciate what Kane did for them to get them to this point. How did Kane die? I don't remember exactly. She was shot by Gina after Baltar let her go. So Baltar was brought in to interrogate Gina and Baltar was aghast, of course, at what happened to her because of his uh, sexual, constant sexual relationships with number sixes. And as a consequence, released her and gave her a gun and said, do whatever you want to do with that. And so in the aftermath of the battle against the resurrection ship, Gina was able to get to Kane's quarters and shoot Kane in the head. Lover's quarrels, man. I mean, it comes back around pretty, pretty nicely based on what ends up happening here. Um, oh, shout out to Michelle Forbes. What a fucking pro. Like she does a great job playing Kane. Like you, you, you get what she's going for with this man. Like there's, there's, uh, there's a steely resolve in her eyes at all times. You know, she gets the character. She goes all in on, I mean, it's, it's typical Michelle Forbes. Forbes always delivers. I, 
am curious to see the chain of events that led to Forbes being cast in this role, specifically after choosing not to go into Deep Space Nine to portray Ro Laren, uh, and instead the invention of uh, Kira Norris to to fill that void that her uh, decision to try and pursue film or or whatever, like how does she reconcile things with Ron Moore and be like, yeah, you know, hey, sorry, I left you high and dry in that Deep Space Nine thing. But uh, yeah, I'd love to do a, a season worth of this. I mean, she really only ended up doing like four episodes of, of BSG and then, this, you know, in this movie. So it wasn't a huge commitment, which was probably the the difference. Maybe she did a season of True Blood. Yeah, I think at one point. I mean, she she's there for a good time, not a long time whenever she's in something, you know. I just I'm curious what her end goal was back in the mid 2000s. Like, did she want to just be like a action hero? Like what what didn't click? What was she going for and why didn't it click on big screen? What held her back? Because I'm not aware of anything she has done outside of Star Trek BSG and True Blood. She was on 24 and she was on The Killing, which are, you know, 24 is a, a big deal to be on. But I don't think her role there was actually all that big. And she was he huge deal on the killing. That's actually a really good show. Um, and that came after this. Definitely came after this. But yeah, she never broke through in a in in something in a way that if she was looking for like that dramatic role or whatever to really like make an Oscar kind of career, like a serious actor career, that did not happen. She just wound up kind of doing the serious dramatic things within the sci-fi space. You know. Hmm. I wonder if she ever goes to Star Trek conventions. God, she seems like someone who would not. Or if she did, she probably did like twice, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> no. I don't think she's doing cameos. Yeah, like she's she's a she's a fucking professional. And she just she's the professional of the sci-fi world. Through the flashbacks, we see that this Gina uh, who we know is a Cylon and we know is sabotaging Pegasus from the inside uh, is held in very close esteem, being privileged to uh, captain's dinner scenes, uh, schmoozing with the seniority of the, the ship, yet interestingly is not entrusted by default with uh, security operational codes, which will let her really advance the Cylon agenda. And it's not until... She's able to persuade Shaw into sharing her military codes that there's really an opportunity for another um, big, big hit for Pegasus to take during the one dinner that Shaw is privy to while Gina's there. Kane will go on to give a little speech. Previously, she had done a all hands message to the ship where she states the intent of Pegasus moving forward is to, again, not protect and shepherd and, and and save the human species it is to become a instrument of revenge against the cylons um but during the dinner she says hey listen i you know i want to be clear i'm not looking at being stupid we're going to do a smart gorilla uh series of 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 uh events against the cylon and we're not just you know blind swinging out here in rage this is going to be a smart calculated affair the, the scene where shaw gives up her command codes is really well played out because it's the extended scene where gina talks about her relationship with kane and you know 
tries humanizes Kane and herself and shows the intimacy between them and then at, basically makes the ask for the code after establishing the trust through that storytelling very clever right what like, a Janeway moment because this is uh michael the bartender right this is this yeah is captain's robo fuck toy it, it 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 is except this one is a murder bot <laughs> i maintain that had they kept michael around for long enough it was only a matter of time until he killed someone with one of those another those shout out, chairs another shout out actor wise to trisha helfer herself who is very tasked with difficult uh uh, ask here of playing multiple versions of the same character who all have to have very different personalities right one number six is always different than the other you have the number six that's in baltar's head who is a very specific personality you have the number six uh that is the real one that was involved with him when he was on caprica uh but you know and they spend a lot of time separate and then eventually wind up together who looks like the one in his head but is personality wise extraordinarily different and then you have all like the one shots like gina or like the weapons manufacturer that shows up like for an episode in season one before like six's identity becomes known um like the leader six in season four um she she's constantly asked to play okay play this character but different (laughs) over and over and over again and each time they all feel like different people that have had slightly different lives and have developed slightly different personalities as a consequence it's also during that uh dinner that Kane lays out her plans to attack a comm relay. And this is what's going to set Pegasus up for its first kind of uh, ugly win because that six unit will go on to, uh, to, to ring the bell and say, Hey, we're coming, be ready. And I'm going to sabotage a ship when we get there. So there's going to be some heavy losses on deck. I thought that the movie kind of made it seem like um, Shaw was on to Gina six well in advance but it did yeah. not play off like that at all i mean they, yeah, they, they, they play her as ball. clueless as everyone else she finds out that gina is a six because the cylon boarding party that's able to get onto pegasus because of the compromised codes has a six overseer that she lays out with an assault rifle conveniently in front of a security camera and then figuring out oh you look like my captain's girlfriend <laughs> rut row <Reggie. laughs> She takes off of the CIC, puts her gun on six on uh, Gina and is like, yo ho, she put up, put up the the footage from the chick I just blasted. (laughs) They're the same. And uh, she, you know, tries to resist arrest, kills the two Marines, but can't pull the trigger on Kane because she's got real feelings for her. And that allows uh, Shaw to uh, lay the butt end of a assault rifle into Gina's head, uh, rendering her unconscious. And that and that allows her to be captured, and then we see a, shall we say, um, dark, suggestive, darkly suggestive scene where uh, Kane calls for Lieutenant Thorne, who is exactly the man you do not want near your children, and says, "Yeah, go ahead and rape this robot until she gives us the goods." This is what kind of springboards, I think, Shaw into. Um kane's favor and and her utility only grows from there and uh kane will start taking a personal interest in shaping shorn up or uh shaw up into the razor she needs humanity to become to accomplish a task and that's where we really start tying into the overall theme and title 
of the movie Razor or Rise Up. If you're Australian, as uh, as Shaw is, call it Dagger. Make the movie named Dagger. Humanity needs to become a dagger. This is my knife. We're going to call it a dagger, not a fucking razor. Like, yes, razor sounds cooler in the mid 2000s, but. Bastard Galactica, knife. <laughs> like, doesn't have the same ring to it. BSG miniseries special event movie, Shank. <laughs> Uh, this knife, which is twirled in slow motion excessively in the intro of the show, is Kane's knife uh, that she picked up after she abandoned her sister to die at the hands of the Cylons before finally being cornered in a shipping container by a Cylon. Uh, all, all it can do is just remind me of something I thought was very silly in Battlestar Galactica, like jumping over to Voyager. If we see a gun, like, uh, what was the fucking footsteps in, in our mothers and our sisters episode? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the one with the catch and jungle fighters. You could recognize that as an earth gun. That's what the griller fighters were using was like Vietnam rifles or whatever. And it really pulls you out of the scene because it doesn't look like a space gun. Stuff in Voyager or Star Trek always looks like a space alternative. You never see a normal looking fork it's always a space fork and you don't get a normal looking pillowcase it's a space pillowcase something's always zingy about it right contrast that with battlestar galactica and everything just off the shelf military utility real life and it's jarring because you're telling me that a padlock in the colonies 200,000 years ago looks exactly the same that that humanity has developed on the exact same trajectory after a hard reset and our boots look exactly like their boots and our it's all folding fuck next. it will happen again that the idea of the cyclical nature of these events is actually the big philosophical underpinning of the show so i actually buy it i buy it that this technological there's progress. only one way to make a master lock Yep, and it's it's this way. The same master lock you have on your locker in high school. They're fated, sir. They're fated to make that master lock that way now (laughs) and into the future and through the past. The master lock will shall always be this way. You know, going into those flashbacks when Kane's kind of uh, preaching to Shaw about the necessity of leaving people behind uh, to continue the fight, how she has rebranded her own cowardice. Right. Because that that's a pretty powerful scene when you're seeing like Shaw as a little girl at the end of the first Cylon War. uh, Her dad whisking her family away to safety, the dad getting stuck saying, hey, you're in charge now. Take care of him. Get him out of here. Get him to safety. And then her just straight up leaving her sister to die. Like that's some fucking psychologically scarring shit. That's some traumatic stuff. And again, it's not until the very end where she's finally willing to confront the Cylon and and make that stand right as the armistice is signed and people are zipped off. I was fully expecting her sister to somehow play a role that she was captured on one of these skin ships to go off into hybrid research or whatever. But uh, that does not end up being the case. I mean that those scenes told the story what they, that they needed to, which was Admiral Kane villainy needed to have an explanation right like why the fuck is she such a monster well she uh she was a coward and allowed her sister to die 
and it turned her into the person that she is, which is someone who hates the Cylons with the intensity that she hates herself. Right? Mm. Like, that's it. That's the lesson. She hates the Cylons because she hates herself and what the Cylons not only did to her sister, but did to her and how she abandoned her. And so that's why she's this murderous rage of like, I will risk everything to kill you now. Like, (laughs) I, well done. Very well done. I completely get Brad Lafayne was coming from. If it's a story that seems familiar, it's because we've seen it already in a man named Neelix. <laughs> New Neelix, and, Neelix. <laughs> Neelix and Kane have a lot in common. Tragic backstory, family murdered by monsters. Mm-hmm. Occasionally they indulge. Nuclear in, holocaust. Occasionally they indulge in murder. <laughs> <laughs> Although Neelix only when he's dumping Jonas off into the, off the hell bridge. Oh, whatever. You have to flesh out what the real relationship there was with Hogan, but uh... the the current day story in the show advances to an issue where, for some reason, that is unexplained, aside from Admiral Adama saying he did it against his better judgment. He allowed a science team to take a raptor to study a supernova revenant. Uh, uh, remnant which is the most star trek thing i've ever seen in battlestar galactica by far Mm -hmm. of we're gonna get a plot going because the science team went to go look at a science thing which is just not what the show does ever 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 in a million years ever and the fact that this is the one and only time you ever hear that excuse it's quite jarring (laughs) um but nevertheless we need this plot to happen and this is what we're gonna do get a little of that voyager ramrod in there Got to just a little bit, just you know, just pack it in a little bit. (laughs) Uh, So, so then, so then, Adama goes to Adama. I also like how this really puts under a spot, like how dirty it looks for Adama to put his own son into command of Pegasus. Like, I would be so fucking stink if I'm like, I'm sorry, the captain of the other ship is making his son our fucking boss now like get out of here with this fucking royalty bullshit um but you know uh adama gets uh jamie bambers over there and he's like all right here's your mission i need you to do this for me play it out however you want this false sense of authority he gives lee over and over again which really culminates in the end when the fucking uh admiral adama like calls off the nuke strike but then dumps this other hard decision in his, his hands. Like, Oh yeah. <laughs> a little rough. He's a real piece of shit too. <laughs> it's bad. Dad. Yeah. His, his inability to let his son make real decisions, except when there's decisions he does not want to make. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is on you. So I'm like, uh, since when, because it seems to me like you're the real person who's in control here, dad. So he says, yeah, go, uh, go get our people out. And if you see the Cylons, peace out because we're not looking to fight we're just trying to rescue a team so indeed pegasus goes to investigate they find uh they go to the raptors last location and they find a whole bunch of of oh and i'm going along on the trip too this is your mission that's later for the first one he goes by himself Uh, yeah and for the first one they go by himself and you starbuck and one of the pegasus pilots are out there flying the cap trying to find this ship and instead of finding the Raptor, they, they find like a shit ton of Cylon ships. And they're like, uh-oh, we need to get the fuck out of here. We're not here to fight. Uh, but Lee is very cautious in how he opens up the defensive batteries on the ships. They do a good job of, of showing how the flak battery works. 
which is the the guns fire these projectiles that explode and basically create a screen that prevent Cylon ships or missiles to be able to approach, right? Like this is how we prevent ourselves from getting shot. We put up this flak barrier around this defensive barrier around the ship facing where the enemy is coming from so they can't approach us. And so the, they're being selective because they're not trying to hit Starbuck and the other pilot, uh, but they're taking a while to get the, their FTL spooled up. And while Lee's not paying attention, Shaw's like, yeah, just open up all the batteries. Just f- fucking, fucking light them up. This is bullshit. <laughs> it nearly kills both the pilots in the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does cause one of the Raiders to fly into the ship along with them. And so Starbucks got to do a cool Starbucks thing and shoot it down within the uh, the actual flight deck. Very very neat shot. And then you very uh, top gun, very top gun. That's where you get the the showdown that occurs with uh, her and Shaw after she gets out of her plane, where she's like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" And like somehow Shaw is supposed to be as intimidating as Starbuck, which is really funny when Starbuck is literally like looking down physically at her. Like I, I could destroy you. And that's also when you get the flashback of when Kane executes his first officer. Like rough scene, man. Very rough scene. You, they do a good job of showing these two are tight, that he really cares about her in a platonic fashion. You know, like you're you're my boss and you're my friend, and she's doing the unreasonable thing of attacking the 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 Cylon target that's been prepared by Gina's treachery, which is exactly what she promised not to do. And her first officer calls her out and is like, "You you said you weren't going to do exactly this thing." Come a on, lot of people are going to die needlessly. This is a very Star Trek moment where the first officer, bound by duty and humanity puts his foot down and says, I am not willing to act on these orders. I'm sorry. You're my friend, but what we're doing here is wrong. And unlike star Trek, she says, give me your gun. Give me your service nine. And we're not talking about a, a phaser. Like you're usually talking about Joe, where you can shoot anybody you want with a phaser as many times as you want. Cause it's just a tickle studying. Uh, this is, this is a real nine millimeter. And she shoots him in the head and puts his brains all over uh, a light, bright map behind her in front of the entire bridge. And everybody's like, holy shit. And then she's like, uh, Stenzlin, <laughs> a- a.k.a. Fist, you're promoted. Are you going to do what I'm telling you to do? Or do you want to, you know, lay down on the floor with a new hole in your head as well? And he goes, I guess I'm going to do what you do. And the trauma on his face, I-, I really like what they do with Fisk through the rest of this because he this is not the life he wanted and he is in so far over his head uh being forced into situation after situation which will escalate you know in the next kind of flashback of inhumanity where they're pirating the civilian fleet and uh he sent over to to execute kane's will and ultimately it's shaw that has to step in and be the hand of agency to to push the villainous agenda uh, because this guy's just not cut out for it. No, and... Fisk, Fisk is a coward and also aghast humanity-wise. Like, yes. He, he actually is like, no, this is bad. I don't want to do this. And also does, does not have the stomach for it. Coward is probably the wrong word to describe that in retrospect. But 
And so he's well, beat, I think he's, Howard... he's a beat dog. Like he will do what he's told, but there's a certain level of just not able to pull the trigger that he has. The cowardice he has is that he is not going to cross Kane and he is yeah, not he has going a moral to cowardice against Kane, sure. But he does not have the uh the fortitude to be the monster that is required in the scenes he's being put into. So when uh Shaw says like, you know, questioning orders is a bad move on this ship, like it's a pretty cool flashback into like the most extreme measure of that possible. I had forgotten that in the show they had said that Kane executed her XO. So again, that, that all kind of stunned me That's coming out of nowhere. And again, it, it, a good, a good moment to vilify Kane to offset some of the other sympathy that the, the yeah. show had built up. It reminds you that while there is some sympathy for Kane, she's still wrong. Like she's still doing incorrect things. Her death was a good thing. Two over on that too, right? Because killing her XO wrong. Uh, and and continuing to push into this meat grinder trap that they walked into also wrong. The the big reveal, though, was that they they pulled off a the raider that came in and it was not what they expected. It is, in fact, an old style Cylon Raider with tin can style old Cylons on it. And that's when we get the big group scene where we see some of the characters that do not appear for the rest of the movie as Adama, Roslyn, Colonel Ty, Baltar, Head Six, Sharon. Everybody gets their scene discussing, like, the fuck is this thing doing out here? Uh, because the Cylons being into, you know, being machines, they, they don't allow prior generations to exist. They get scrapped. So why are these old antiques out here flying around with these old antique Cylons in them. And that's when you get backstory from Sharon, who is brought down in, in her handcuffs because she's still a prisoner at this point in the story, who explains, oh no, uh, the, a whole bunch of the old style Cylons got away uh, with the first hybrid, which was our experimentation in creating a human uh, machine combo creature. And they took a really religious bent with it and are defending it to this day. And so it could be that these are the Cylons that are defending it. And that's when you get Adama's flashback, which is the, both the coolest thing, followed by the stupidest thing, followed by the most horrific thing that happens in this whole movie. They flashback 40 years. He's, he's flying his Viper in a huge battle. And the battle is that scene is probably the coolest one in the whole movie because it is in the, it, it is in the war. It's like multiple base stars, multiple battle stars duking it out. You see that one of the battle stars is getting the shit kicked out of it. So all the Vipers are trying to clear out all the, the Raiders that are near it to allow it to escape. They fucking fail. The battle star explodes. You hear their screams across the fucking radio. It's very horrors of war very well done you're like oh this war sucked <laughs> like i get it like you see this taste of this you saw the taste of what happened with kane you see this you're like no wonder everyone who survived this did not like computers like they were done with this shit and he gets pissed off because this battle star blew up and you're to hear there's dying screams he wants to kill more cylons and he goes into the atmosphere and like dog fights a guy but in doing so damages his viper and he has to bail out 
He's he's a total badass during this whole scene, right? He's like a badass Viper pilot. He's shooting everything down. He's awesome. The guy that got playing Young One does a really good job capturing the Adama essence, too, I feel. Yeah, he's got this real low voice, you know? He's he's trying to force it a little bit, but it works. The, the stupidest thing that happens, probably the least Battlestar Galactica thing to ever occur in an episode slash movie of Battlestar Galactica, is as he escapes the Viper and is parachuting down free-falling before he opens his parachute down to the planet, he is pursued by a Cylon that is the one that he blew, ship he blew up, trying to shoot him. And he's having this mid-air fight that would not have belonged in a James Bond movie in its most cheesy form. Like, this is some Black Widow MCU shit, right? Like, fighting after, after you're falling out of a helicopter against the uh, your fellow goons. It is not at all the gritty realism that we've come to expect from this show. The CG is terrible. It is the dumbest thing. He gets the chute open. They both land there. And then he welcomes to Earth him with a crowbar. <laughs> like, this sequence is dumb. What are you doing? Buster's a badass. We get it. Thank yeah, you. We, yes, Bill Adama is the coolest guy. <laughs> we got it. That's going to be a great story to tell the guys over cold ones tonight. Yeah, like, get back to the ship. What'd you do? Well, <laughs> 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 let me tell you about my day. Mm-hmm. yeah it, it, it stood out as so dumb because the show does a great job of making the stakes of these conflicts the Cylons feel very real and grounded and have a lot of weight to them and like escaping a fight with the Cylons is actually like something everyone breathes a huge sigh of relief when they successfully do so and here you got fucking young Bill Adama having an air shootout with a fucking free-falling Cylon only to end up killing him with a crowbar Oh, he was only missing a catchphrase at the end. The Cylon actually gets hands on Adama, and instead of just ripping his legs and arms out of their socket, yeah, there, there's some sort of slap fight, and he hits his uh, shoot, and the, yeah, like you said, the Cylon falls, he gets in there, but the warehouse they crash in has a, it's off, something's wrong here. In the investigation that young Adama goes through on this, you see, he sees like the leftovers of the torture devices that have been set up. And when he puts his hand within this weird tank, he gets these visions of what happened in this room. And that's when you see some fucking event horizon shit. Uh, it is these flashback tortures of the Cylons experimenting with the flesh of these cat of these captured humans and it's constant screams from that's what got me like rewatching this it's that all of these victims are just constantly in agony just screaming at the top of their lungs about the pain they're suffering as they're being mutilated by these machines as they like pull their eyes out and keep them alive and learn yeah it's uh it's it's a pretty classic trope at this point we see it in the matrix specifically the new renaissance animatrix series terminator salvation right that moment mm-hmm. where uh the war brings ai to learn it's going to need to infiltrate and to infiltrate it's going to need to learn about the creators and how does muscle and skin and bone work uh while the person's alive just being alive while you're being dissected it it's always hard to watch and that is certainly the case in this so in talking to you about this, because now now we start opening the door on 
the goofy Ron Moore stuff that I don't enjoy. And that starts getting into prophecy and religion mm-hmm. and the supernatural element or call it what you will. So your perception is that Adama is able to have these um, these eyes of the past, these spirit touch moments because he put his hand in the goo and that somehow gave him a connection to the hybrid and he was reliving the hybrids memories. I think so. This is definitely not explained, right? And Adama never has any intersection or interaction with the supernatural elements of the show, if you recall, which is not something that ever happens to him. So this is a bit odd that how they decided to to provide this information. I think it would have been much more on brand for him to found a computer terminal. Or to actually walk actually into this it. with people you know, being tortured. Yeah. Yeah, Like I, and, and are, am I to believe that the hybrid is in the big bowl of jello just hiding because in the later scenes, the hybrid makes it seem like he was there. I, I don't get it. And it's, I see what they're going for, but there's this extra step of psychic flashbacks. Just, just put the humans in there being tortured. That that's all, right? Right. I, I, the realism of this particular flashback sequence was already rather shattered, so maybe that's why I was a little numb to the idea that this is how this worked. The point being, though, is that Dama is given a distinct impression that horrific torture happened here, and as he investigates, he actually finds there are still human survivors within now, this facility. Cylons very advanced, right? They're AI mm-hmm. mechanics, right? The robots, mm-hmm. robotic yeah. precision. Not good at building doors. No. No, not their forte. <laughs> and uh, so, so well, I mean, maybe just Husker is such a fucking badass that even, like, Cylon door technology cannot resist his power. I mean, well, they... I'm saying not good at building doors and that he finds a, a door that people are trapped in and, like, busts the door open, but then they can't just open the door and get out. So he finds survivors and they're like, please, we're civilians. I think there's a little girl in there reaching out to him. It's very jarring and, 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 you know, creates these mental scars. Hey, you got to help us. There's an earthquake. Uh, there's not an earthquake. In fact, there's a big spaceship lifting up like the, the main research facility was probably a base star. I'd say, I don't yeah. know. Mm-hmm. It's lifting off and he, Runs out and sees it flying away. This is right at the end of the the war. So they're like, all right, cease fire. And uh, Dama's all like, no, you know, they're doing terrible stuff here. We need to keep fighting. But the building he ran out of, like, that's still there. It doesn't collapse. The survivors should still be in there. And everything that they saw or heard, they try to create the situation where all the evidence is destroyed. Nobody believes him. And this has just been this goofy thing he's had to carry on with him. But again, from what you see on scene, like it's all there. The survivors are there. He couldn't open the door, but everybody should still be fine in there once the base star takes off. So I, that that's like a persistent flaw I feel in this movie is that the story they're trying to tell is not necessarily being supported by what you're actually seeing happening on screen. The flashback establishes Dadama's personal connection to the concept of the original hybrid, 
and he may have in fact been in the facility where it was created and that creates the urgency that the the ramrod the gentle ramrod Mm. that causes the rest of the plot to happen which is adam is like we're fucking finding these people we're destroying this thing i think ramrod's too strong ramrod the ramrod moment there is i let a group of scientists leave in a raptor to study space nonsense uh, the rest of this, I think, is pretty strong writing as to, hey, I saw some shit. It never really sat well with me. And now I'm in a position of authority where I can pursue my paranoia and we're going to do that. Um, so we're going to keep tracking these people down. We're going to save our people. Lee, you're in charge of this important thing. By the way, I'm uh, going to be here to backseat drive. So uh, real quick too, jumping into the scene where they're examining the the OG Cylons like how does the rest of the cast feel like hey they're making a movie and we get one scene in it and they're bringing in like completely new characters and taking these guest actors like here's this thing and we're not getting any of these paychecks at all i mean they had the one scenes and they did get their paychecks right like that was the thing is most of these guys didn't have to work the only ones who actually had to work the whole thing were Sackoff, uh edward james almost jamie bamber it's about it right trisha helfer for part of it from the og cast yeah yeah Yeah. maybe then the rest of them had to do one scene that's pretty that's pretty lit altar walking (laughs) around with like his angel i'm like are they angels at this point are they time traveling to look at key moments like i don't get what's just it's it's confusing the head cylon the 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 projections of six and baltar that are ultimately in actual six and actual baltar's head are what you would call old testament style angels which is to say not like angelic beings of good but indifferent agents of you know the you know divine creator power uh it's very it's very old testament very um I guess you'd call it Kabbalah type of thing, I guess. And uh, incredibly pretentious. And even I hate it. Yes. Ron Moore doing the religious stuff. He loves that. I don't think he does a good Could job. Could not with. leave well enough alone in this show, unfortunately. Yeah. To its debt, to its ultimate detriment. Agreed. All right. So we have mostly caught up on all of the, uh, the flashbacks, save one important one, which is, you you already discussed which is the execution of the raid on the civilian ships we find out about that because they're planning the op against the base star that has the original hybrid on it and in the planning lee has been informed via Roslyn that shaw was involved in the massacre of the civilians that has been hinted at and discussed previously we finally do see it and as you said, they find the civilian ships. They go to the civilian main civilian vessel. That's where we see Laird, Chief Laird, um, who is a character from from Pegasus that is a minor character throughout the show. He's like the aerospace engineer that got recruited, which is kind of like the way they discussed this before. And you see the escalation of the conflict where the civilians realize what Pegasus is going to do. They don't want to cooperate. Kane has had enough of their bullshit. He says, execute whoever you have to until you get what you need. Fisk doesn't want to do it. And it is ultimately Shaw who has to pull the trigger to kill Laird's family in front of him. That is his wife and kids to end the opposition to them on the ships and allow them to disassemble them for parts, take all of their useful people and leave the rest of them to die. And it is the the point where Shaw goes from 
good soldier with still hasn't done anything immoral to having clearly committed a cane-like act, right? Like war gone crime. over the edge. A total war crime. Yeah. Committed a war crime and done so under the premise of we have to do this so that we can continue the fight. Right? She buys into Kane's worldview. Do something traumatic now so we're not going to be in a prolonged and even bloodier exchange with the civilian fleet. Like rip the band-aid off fast. The potential consequences of this are put off until after the operation is over, which is going to feature Pegasus rolling in, drawing all of the raiders away in a firefight and allowing Starbuck, uh, Shaw, and a couple red shirts to board the base star on a Raptor with a nuke. The idea of get in, find our people, nuke this fucking thing from the inside and get out. I'd like the Raptor being a that that the pegasus is a diversion the raptor warping in uh also diversion because they intentionally sabotage the raptor so it explodes after they like space walk out to really sell the plan on multiple stages it's it's clever and i like it um the base star the, the so the old school cylons i have in there those were cg right not dudes in suits yeah it was all cg you can really think- tell too it should have been dudes in suits, I think. Really give it that old school feel. Probably would yeah. have looked better. They looked like they were kind of cutouts almost when they had the composites. Yeah. Um, they find the Raptor, the the previous science crew. They get them. They're leaving. You get another. Uh, and, and throughout all this, too, Shaw has been. She has the sober mindset like she's very matter of fact about it. Like when Lee tries to question her, like, you know, what are you exactly? What's your relation with Sean? She's like, I, you know, you want that legacy of Kane. Well, that's it. It's shitty. I'm shitty. And if you want it, I'll give it to you. And we kind of have the final expression here. When one of the uh, Pegasus rescue red shirts gets nabbed and they're pulling him back. And we know that there's a, arguable fate worse than death awaiting this guy right absolutely well established so shaw mercy kills the guy and everybody's like oh my god and it's like okay well you know maybe that makes sense except for like right after that then they shoot a couple of the cylons with their regular nine millimeter bullets and it kills them and it's like well fuck man if if your bullets those guys up yeah like we're jumping the gun here man come on dude like if you're shooting the Cylons and your bullets are bouncing off, then yeah, you mercy kill. But if you could have just shot the Cylons, you can you, you guys are real pieces of shit. Shaw gets shot during the rescue. And this necessitates the thing you predicted from the start, which is, well, she ain't in the show. So something's <laughs> going to have to happen with her. Mm-hmm. The nukes detonator is broken. Uh, I liked the, 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 was the gunnery sergeant chick. I was with mm-hmm. him too. She had that look like weathered. I've done this for a while. Kind of like look to her it was a good casting choice for, for a small role. They've um, got communications problems. The base stars jamming. So Pegasus can't communicate. You get this illusion of control in the CIC between Adama and his son. <laughs> where he's like, well, fuck our team's probably dead. Yeah. And this is a big fucking deal. We should just nuke this thing from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. And then uh, Admiral Adama's like, no, belay that order. And it's like, oh, you son of a bitch. Like, what, if, if you're going to just run the mission yourself. No, you got to give him a chance. Like, so there's all this interference. 
and Lee seems pretty confused on what to do. They and finally they break re- through the in- interference, say, hey, we got the nuke, but we got to cook it off by hand. And he orders Starbuck to stay behind and, and cook the nuke off by hand. And she's like, okay, yes, sir. And that's when Shaw pulls a gun on Starbuck and says, you guys should get out of here. I'm going to go ahead and sacrifice myself because I am a piece of shit. So I'm, I'm going to going to do a little heroic sacrifice business to uh, rectify the scales of morality. Uh, Well done on her part, her sort of like desperate realization that, you know, she needs to pay back what she's done. And uh, Starbuck ultimately relents, of course, and gives her a salute, uh, which was the only, which was a moment of respect that made a lot of sense because they had a very tense, didn't like each other. And then, you know, she's respecting like, yes, okay, I get it. I'm respecting you. This is a big there's thing a lot her. of reading between the lines. And again, to contrast this with Voyager, I feel like in Voyager, they would spell everything out. I'm injured. I'm not going to survive this. It's my place to blow the nuke up. I have things I have to atone. They don't say any of it. They show all of it through the acting. It works. It's powerful. As you said, there is this antagonistic relationship between the two of them. Uh, Starbucks obviously relieved that she's not going to have to fucking die there. You know, hey, what are you doing, Shaw? You know damn well what I'm doing now. Fuck off, right? And I also like the follow up at the end when when Lee's talking to Starbuck, and Starbuck's kind of shitty about it. Like, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe she was faded, maybe she just had it coming. Like, there's still this flippant uh, regard for Shaw and the things that she's done. But before Shaw has a chance to pull the the trigger on the nuke, she decides to do some uh, some sightseeing. She pull. She literally. Th- has a bullet through her abdomen and decides to haul this nuclear weapon through this thing with nothing but her fucking service nine. Uh, but ha- just, just hap- happens to get to the hybrids tank. Yeah. It was like right around the corner. It was yeah. a, <laughs> who would have known I, that the, the escape route was right next to the hybrid tank. I, I would say that this is probably a measure of the religious element, which is the hybrid knows he's going to die. So he'd like to have this conversation before he does. So he, you know, gets the Cylons out of the way of the the path, whatever she gets there. And that's when you see the old ass hybrid who can actually talk. Unlike the other hybrids we've seen through the show who just ramble, you know, in their tanks, they don't say anything. This one's actually having a conversation with her and um, knows all about her, knows her history, says she asks if she wants to be forgiven and then lays down a uh, prophecy that Starbuck is the angel of death and humanity will follow her, her to their end. And she tries to impart that message to Lee before communications finally shut off again, cannot do so. And then pulls the trigger on the nuke ending her life, ending the life of the hybrid and destroying the base star. So let's step away from razor for a second and look at the greater Battlestar Galactica story like what the fuck is Starbuck and I remember watching it being very confused there was some great fan theories I seem to recall that like Starbuck was actually the child of a hybrid number two the one that was murdered like is she an angel there's all this prophecy and stuff they're laying out I remember there's like a real distinct lack of payoff and it just seemed like this this concept that flops like she is supposed to be this pivotal character in humanity's destiny but it, it it doesn't really pay off and there's this how did she come back from death that's never really resolved like what the fuck i mean if you're the expert lay this out for me sure 
I'd be happy to. The real answer is that Ron Moore wrote himself into a classic corner, couldn't answer those questions, and just literally did a deus ex machina at the end, which is why the ending sucks, right? Like, this is why the show's quality level was extremely high at the start and ultimately descends in a linear path towards its ending because it cannot explain itself well enough to the point where you have the last thing they do is a desperate cash-in continuity movie to try and solve some of their own mistakes for the sake of the story, right? I do think that there is something to the idea that uh, she is the, uh, Starbuck is originally the a, a child of a humanoid Cylon model and a uh, human, uh, because her father is an unseen character except in one episode where he is apparently a pianist and artist, which the unseen uh, humanoid Cylon model was an artist as well. And so that makes sense that before that model was boxed, eliminated, removed, that perhaps some amount of them intersected with humanity and came back thinking we shouldn't exterminate them. Right? That's always been the fan theory. That that's who Which her dad Ron was. Moore did specifically veto and come out and say, no, this is not the case. Let it go. Which is unfortunate because that actually would have tied things together in a way that made everything make a little bit more sense of why she was such an important character, uh, such that all of these weird metaphysical, physical things that were never explained happened around her. But the truth is, there is no explanation. And in fact, Ron Moore eschewed ever offering an explanation on purpose as if to say, who, you know, it either it doesn't matter or you not understanding is the point. It was the arrogance of the creator at a maximum, and it is why it was very off-putting. Stupid. They're, it is stupid. It is stupid. They they put all of this out there and then chose never to explain it on purpose. And this movie, again, watching this movie after watching the series and having that much attention in such a pivotal moment uh, draw attention to it and just completely whiff moving forward is... I think the writer's strike does bear some blame for why none of that panned out at the end, because they now thought they may never finish the show. The writer's strike very nearly killed Battlestar Galactica, and they had to rush to finish it once it was over. And so perhaps that is part of the reason why this stuff never got the development it was supposed to at the end of the fourth season, providing the context for all of the stuff that you would expected. Uh, that is speculation on my part. I think it was that Ron Moore couldn't come up with an explanation. So he chose not to. And just instead chose to have a speech at the end where Baltar says, yeah, a lot of shit happened that none of us can explain. So, you know what? Let's, uh, let's just go with that. Uh, they all get back. They have their, their little final send off to the, the late XO. Starbucks says, Hey, I'm going to transfer back over to Galactica because you're trying to kill me all the time. Ha ha. See you later, and and that's it. I have their scene drenched with sexual tension, as they always do. Like, four seasons of will-they-or-won't-they-fuck energy that gets so old after a while between the two of them. Because they just don't know what to do. I, You know, it's interesting you say that, because I don't... I didn't pick up any of that through this watch-through. Like, I, I, I couldn't... Yeah, they really... didn't have a lot of it. It was really just that last scene where you have that that sort of energy that they, they throw against each other all the time. This definitely was not an example of them doing it a lot. Overall, though, Razor's good. Um, it, it Very depressing. Incredibly depressing, but is a perfect example of the quality of Battlestar Galactica when it is good. I will say that unlike 
Game of Thrones, which I think ended so badly, I never want to watch it again. I do, in fact, enjoy watching Battlestar Galactica episodes still to this day. Like it has rewatch power for over me. And if you've never seen the show, uh, it, even with what we're saying about the ending, I think it's worth watching. I think it's very good and it's good enough through its best moments that it overcomes its worst ones uh, in, in the aggregate. And this is a fine piece of that canon if dark as hell. I like the Shaw character, despite not being physically imposing enough for the Starbuck face-offs. I think she would have been a good addition to bring into the show moving forward. So instead of her being a a character that only exists in a little blip of a larger story during this movie, um, there there could have been more. I have physical, the physical mismatch aside, she was an excellent actor and did a great job with her performance. And I like the I like the character as a concept, and I like yeah. the character as an execution. This movie was good but this movie reminds me of all the bad touch i suffered under the last couple seasons of battlestar and makes me wary of watching it again i agree that battlestar was a great series to watch one time but i have no desire to get back in and and watch them take the wild potential of season one and season two and and how they mistreat it by the end into the trudge that uh the end of it becomes I want to jump back to something we talked about during the season six rip. Could Ron Moore have saved Voyager? What would, would Voyager under Ronald Moore had been better looking at a lot of the stuff I see here on the board. I, I'm going to continue to say my answer is no, the supernatural religious leanings, the hubris that you've pointed out. Like, I think you would have seen the same problems come to bear uh in voyager and uh i don't know watching this has kind of knocked some of the nostalgia off of bsg for me and i think i'm going to be a little bit more forgiving of voyager moving forward just because like going back and trying to watch this uh just felt like such a mess trying to remember all the little plot threads and where things were like in the heat of the moment very fulfilling but coming in cold extremely difficult i'm going to disagree with you and say that i think ron moore could have saved Voyager because I think Ron Moore's failures are those circumstances where he does not have guide rails. Lack of accountability and the fact that he was the ultimate authority on this with no one to check and balance him. Yeah, this was all him. He controlled this 150%. And because of that, because he didn't have any any guide rails, he didn't have a, a canon book, he didn't have an executive producer that could exert some authority over him. It, it's the it's the lack of control over the open-ended creative process that ultimately brings Battlestar Galactica's worst traits to the forefront and takes what is an ultimately, which, which starts would take something that starts as a great premise and a great show and kind of slowly runs it into the ground because he just doesn't know what to do with it. And if he had had a structured environment but yet the freedom to tell the stories he wanted to tell and the way he wanted to tell them, I think that is where he shines creatively. And I think he could have easily done that on Voyager if he had been given the ability to do so. Well, we'll never know. I don't know, man. This, this was, a again, the depressing flashbacks. This is heavy, heavy material to go through and watch. Well done. And uh, I will say that it was fun to, to get back in, see the ship, see the characters. And kind of experience this as an encapsulated event 
as a reminder to what uh, Battlestar was. Yeah, I agreed. Thank you to our patrons who essentially funded us talking about this for nearly two hours. And uh, I'm sure it'll be shorter after I do some edits, but we enjoyed it. We're glad we could take a look at it. And thank you to all of you for your continued support. And we hope you will continue your support as we finish our hateful voyage to the Elf Quadrant and further into other journeys and other parts of the galaxy. Thank you.